Welcome to the Real Clear Politics Takeaway for Friday, January 12th. I'm Andrew Walworth. The countdown to the real beginning of the 2024 political season is almost over as Republican voters in Iowa prepare for what promises to be a frigid night of caucusing this Monday. Also, President Biden responded to attacks on shipping in the Red Sea by arraigning back Houthi rebels when on Thursday night he authorized an airstrike against a number of targets in Yemen, controlled by the rebels, all while Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin remains in the hospital after a disappearing act that left many Pentagon observers scratching their heads. And a new poll from Real Clear Opinion Research shows that America remains a religious country, and perhaps just as importantly, Americans retain a deep respect for religious freedom. Joining me to talk about all this are Real Clear Politics President and co-founder Tom Bevan, Washington Bureau Chief Carl Cannon, and National Political Correspondent Susan Crabtree. So, Tom, uh, you're observing all this from the relative warmth of Chicago. So tell us, what uh, are your impressions, and do you think that any of the candidates out there in Iowa have the elusive big mo that could change the trajectory of the race? It doesn't seem like that. I mean, you know, Haley's been on kind of a, a surge, you know, I'm using air quotes here, surge. But, you know, the problem is so and we just got four new polls. Right. So all of these have been taken after the first of the year because we were dealing with some data that was from mid-December. So it was kind of hard to get a sense. And Trump has held his lead or increased his lead in every single one of these polls Haley has moved up and she's ahead of DeSantis now for the first time. And and this Suffolk poll that came out earlier this week was the first poll to show her actually ahead of DeSantis. Every other poll has them basically tied for second place at around, you know, she's now at 18 and DeSantis is at like 15 and a half. So, so Trump's lead is, is 30 over 35 points. So, you know, it would take a miracle for one of these candidates to actually beat Donald Trump outright next week. And I do think, you know, you mentioned the weather, it's going to be nasty, it's going to be cold. I think that probably benefits Trump because his supporters are the ones who are really locked in, they really want to vote for him. You know, it's if you're looking for a Trump alternative and you know, you're thinking, okay, well maybe I like Haley or maybe I like DeSantis. Are you do you like them that much? Are you going to get in your car and go spend, you know, an hour in freezing cold weather? get into a caucus site and listen to the speeches and and casting your vote. I mean, I just don't know that the dynamics of this race favor a big super surprise on uh, on Monday night. Well, Susan, we've had surprises in the past. There may, I don't know if everyone is surprised, but Chris Christie dropped out of the race on Wednesday. How does that change things? Well, I think it really only changes things in New Hampshire, which, you know, I'm not sure is, you know, indicative of the state of the entire race right now. You know, we have Super Tuesday coming up after that, and we will see how um, Nikki Haley can do in her own state of South Carolina. What started this, it seems like, and was the CNN University of New Hampshire poll uh, where she was within seven points I think it was 39 to 32 uh, percent of Trump in New Hampshire. And that was when just all of the Nikki Haley supporters said, you know, Christy, you got to go. You know, our colleague Phil Wegman did a great piece, very timely, <laughs> amazingly timely piece 
on uh, Governor Sununu, interviewed him and said, you know, it is time. A vote for Christie is a vote for Trump. What, what is the what is your role here? Are you on a kamikaze mission? You said your role was to uh, target Donald Trump uh, and has been giving everybody hell on the debate stage for not targeting Trump. Uh, but here you are, you could actually guarantee his win in New Hampshire and when Nikki Haley has a chance. Now we see um, the other polls reflecting a movement for her. But I do think there's a lot of media support behind that because I, I don't know, I read political playbook regularly. And it was always I can't tell you how many times they used the term Haley's Comet uh, to describe her momentum. I don't think it's necessarily a comet. <laughs> I think, you know, in that one state, she's done very well. But also you saw on the de debate stage, uh, she was saying that DeSantis was getting very desperate. But, you know, the populist candidate, Donald Trump, seems to be maintaining his uh, a big enough lead. And with the snow and the Arctic winds on Monday, uh, I don't know if uh, DeSantis or Haley can can really carve into his that huge lead. Well, Carl, I read your morning note this morning. This is Friday's morning note, which I highly commend to people if they haven't read it. You wrote about Christie, and you sort of give him a mixed report card, um, at least regarding how he exited the race. Um, so what did you like and what did you not like about the way he suspended his campaign? And we should note that they always suspend their campaigns. They never actually quit the race. They're just taking a little time out to reevaluate. I think that's actually a term of art that they have to do because of the FEC so they continue to raise money. Uh, and I, I looked into that once and did a story about it many years ago, but he's out. He's not, yeah, he's, he's, he's done. It's not a mystery with Christie. The thing about Christie is who he normally talks about is Chris Christie. Now it was his campaign. So, okay. But the way he went on reminded me 11 years ago, 11 and a half years ago, he, he was the keynote speaker at the Republican National Convention introducing Mitt Romney, and he barely talked about Mitt Romney. It was the most unusual keynote speech <laughs> in American political history. He talked for 24 minutes, and I didn't have a stopwatch, but 23 and a half minutes were about Chris Christie and maybe 30 seconds about Mitt Romney. And so, you know, he has a very high self regard. And I guess you have to be if you're in, you know, politics at that level. But what he did was not just the hot mic moment where he said, Haley's going to get spoked. I don't, I don't, maybe he is, maybe she is, maybe she isn't. But then he he basically criticized all of the other people in the race, not just Trump, who he said was unfit to be president, but all of the others, because they won't say Trump's unfit to be president in his language. So they're unfit to be president. This is Christie saying. He said that the, the moment that he realized all was lost was when early in the debate when the moderator asked if if Trump's convicted of a crime, will you still support him? And they all raised their hands. He gave a little dig to DeSantis. He said, at least Ron looked to see if the others raised their hand, which is funny. But he said they're all raised their hand, proving they're all unfit to be president. But it's like Christie doesn't get the moral of his own story. He's having to quit the race because that's not where the Republican electorate is right now. That was the sort of uber Christie part. You know, I'm right and everybody else is wrong and I'm great. And if you don't know it, you're really unfit to even be listening to me, but go ahead and listen to me because I like talking. That's the Christie that wears thin. The Christie that was good, he talked about immigration in a way. It was, you know, it's the answer. And he didn't demonize the immigrants. He demonized the craven leadership of this country. These, you know, the border is essentially open now. And people are giving cite basically given citations to show up, you know, in court, you know, on August 33rd, 2013. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, whatever. And 
So, and Christy, but Christy says, you know, these people are coming here. Why are they coming here? Because they want to be in America because America is still a land of hope and a land of opportunity. And we, and he meant, you know, the, the chattering class, the elites in both parties, we ought to believe in this country as much as they do. I thought it was the, <laughs> the line of the year. I made it my morning, my quote of the day, uh, my quote of the week this morning. But that's that's right. And And there's a larger point there, which is that you can see the outlines of a grand bargain. The conservatives will say, okay, we need more immigration. But then the liberal, but then they say the liberals, okay, but you've got to stop demonizing America and claiming we're a racist country and all our institutions. You got to quit proselytizing in the public schools and Congress and all your campaigns. Obviously, we're not a racist country. We're taking in millions, a million and a half legally every year and millions illegally. And almost all those people come from third world countries. So these people love America and and you, and you say you love them. Everything you don't love is America itself and our founding. Knock that crap off. So I th- that was the part about Christie that was interesting. But he didn't talk about that during the campaign. He just talked about how much he loathes Trump. And that just he just didn't get any traction on that. Does it matter that Christie got out, do you think? Uh, it might. It might. Let's see what happens on Monday. I mean, again, I've said this before. I mean, if, if Haley overperforms and Trump underperforms, then there'll be a narrative that she's surging and he's vulnerable. Uh, and if it gets to New Hampshire, if that carries through, you got a week of great media coverage for Nikki Haley. We don't have any polls. I mean, Trump's lead in New Hampshire has already shrunk uh, to under 20 points. And all of those polls still have Chris Christie in them. He's at about 11%. So, you know, when we get some new data, not talking about Chris Christie, I think most of his supporters are going to migrate to Nikki Haley. And so she should be even closer um, so yeah, I think there's, I think there's a potential that it matters in New Hampshire that Chris Christie got out in advance of, uh, that vote and gives, gives an opportunity and we'll see whether that opportunity blossoms or, or not. I just want to give listeners a sense of the timeline here. So the, I was Monday and January 23rd. So there's eight days until New Hampshire. And then there's more than a month. It's February 24th, right? That we have South Carolina. So there is some time for things to ripen, evolve, change. But Susan, just in terms of Monday, uh, I'm sure you'll be watching. Hopefully you won't be in Iowa. Who's, is anyone going to Iowa for us this time around? Or? I will be in Iowa. Tom will be in Iowa. Well, Tom will be bundled up in I'll Iowa. I'll be driving to Iowa on <laughs> Monday. So hopefully the roads will be clear. In near yeah. blizzard yeah, conditions. It's going to be yeah. awesome. Tom, off air, I may try and talk you out of that. <laughs> well, Susan, you'll be in the warmth of California, but what will you be watching for on Monday night and what should our listeners be watching for? Well, I will be watching for whether uh, DeSantis's commitment to the state, he went all in in, in Iowa uh, and had a you know great ground game operation going there, uh, whether that can compete with Donald Trump and his just basically uh his persona and his base support just you saw him uh at the town hall that i covered uh, the other night and he was just very relaxed he was funny he was compelling everything that desantis is not you know desantis went to all 99 counties in iowa and even though his pack was imploding and Nikki Haley and this had beat him up for that in the debate, uh, he, he, he's certainly shown the commitment there on the ground. Uh, and, you know, Haley is, 
and, and DeSantis are very close uh, in that state. We'll see. I mean, I think Trump is more than 30 points ahead. So it's hard to say uh, what will happen. But polls have you know been wrong and we will see. Caucusing is interesting. I've been to Iowa caucuses in the past. Um, I actually was caught in a squall one time. I was in a rental car and it was like a tight grip on the steering wheel. I couldn't believe I was out there by myself in this weather. So be careful, Tom, when you're out there. I didn't know if I was going <laughs> to survive that night. But caucuses are very different. Uh, you have to get people together, have to uh, be able to show that commitment to, you know, churches, town halls where these caucuses take place. I want to see if DeSantis has any kind of uh, life in his campaign left with all of this talk about Haley surging. And we'll see what what happens that night. I was just going to point out that to the point that Susan is making, the candidates who have done the full Grassley, right, gone to all 99 Iowa counties, have won the last two times. Ted Cruz did it in 2016 over Donald Trump, um, and Rick Santorum did it. Uh, back in 2008, Mike Huckabee basically lived in the state. He won. So th- I think there is something to showing up and visiting folks and building your support and your ground game in Iowa. Now, does that always doesn't always translate to winning the nomination as we've seen in the past? Uh, you know, Rick Santorum is not not president, wasn't even the nominee. But I think there is something to this idea that you know, DeSantis, this is their theory of the case, right? They've got Bob Vanderplatz, who's the the premier evangelical leader. They've got Kim Reynolds, the governor, both of their political operations working on behalf of of him. So we'll see whether that bears fruit or not. But it has worked in the past, but not, not against someone who's 35 points ahead. Though. Right. And so you anticipated my question to Carl, which is that, is this going to rewrite what we think about Iowa going forward? Because as Tom pointed out, evangelical vote is very important in Iowa. Showing up in every precinct is important. These are the things that, you know, that supposedly were the most important things in in Iowa. And we have Trump who basically dropped in the state a couple times, you know, said hello and left up against someone who who did what uh, every political scientist for the last 30 years has said you have to do in Iowa to win. Yeah, but Trump is probably sui generis. I mean, there's something about this guy you know, I know the Democrats feel the media, part of the media that hates him, which is most <laughs> most of our friends. Um, the Democrats, you know, they they must feel like this uh, that, that candidate in that New Yorker, famous New Yorker cartoon, where they're showing the, they're showing the, the 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 pollsters and the flax are showing the candidate his poll numbers, and there's a graph and a chart, and it's gone up to a hundred percent his approval rating, and then it's gone beyond a hundred percent, and it's way above, and the candidate says. Do you get the idea the voters are toying with us? This guy, right? He gets he gets indicted. He loses the he loses reelection and then foments a riot. Now I don't say it's a insurrection, but he wasn't blameless. The he's in he's indicted in New York for paying a porn star. He's indicted in Washington D.C. for January sixth. He's indicted before that in Florida, federal charge for hiding documents after these office. He's indicted in Georgia for January sixth. The New York Attorney General's taking his business from him with a complicit judge. They've thrown him off the ballot now in Colorado, in Maine. Every one of these things that happened, I just mentioned, his numbers went up afterwards. And I, I just find myself saying, do you think the voters are toying with us? That's how it must seem to Trump's opponents. So let's talk a little foreign policy, Carl. Um, just as a background, the U.S. led this coalition strike 
They hit about a dozen sites in Yemen. The targets were assets of the Houthis. The Houthis are this Iranian-backed militia group. They get their name uh, from their founder, who was assassinated in 2004. There are about 20,000 of them, and they control most of the western part of Yemen, which means they control the coastline of the Red Sea. And from there, they've been attacking the shipping in the Red Sea. The Red Sea is just south of Suez Canal. Uh, and they've been doing this since the start of the Hamas war. And so after you know a few months of warning, uh, this is really the first real response by the U.S. and its allies. All this is happening while the Secretary of Defense is in a, in a hospital. And um, Biden is getting it from the left and the right for this latest response. What do you make of it? Well, he, you know, he, look, he's going to be criticized whatever he does. You, he, this is a... This was a proxy war that's been going on in Yemen for years now. And uh, as you pointed out, Iran, Iran is um, backing the Houthis and it's aimed at the, the kingdom, the Saudis. That's, that's who it really is aimed at. Um, and, you know, the Biden administration, their, the first response to the government, it was done very quietly, was to reroute ships, not just American flag vessels, but all these Western ships around the Suez Canal, around 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 the Horn of Africa, which, um, you know, would hurt the economy and, and, and hurt the Suez Canal. You know, that was their first response. And, and I, I imagine there were diplomatic overtures that they, but this is, these are acts of war. They're acts of either piracy or war, depending on what, how you consider the Houthis. And the idea there is that, is that Iran apparently wants to, to foment a two or three front war against Israel, but without being directly involved with having some deniability. And this is the administration saying, I don't think in their minds escalating. I think in their minds trying to keep a lid on. So look, there's not a lot of options, but allowing this, this rebel force to basically interfere with the world shipping is doesn't strike Strike me as a great option. And it reminded me, you know, the United States Marine Corps was formed, you know, to stop piracy right. in that part of the world. And that's something this country has always maintained. To the shores uh, of Tripoli. <laughs> to the shores of Tripoli. So, Susan, this Lloyd Austin part of the story, it, I'm sorry, it's just weird. I want to ask you about something that Leon Panetta said, but 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 first, just what, what's your impression of this? Well, do I think it's overblown about calling for his resignation? Uh, a little bit. I mean, uh, I I do feel like uh, I know Max Boot wrote uh, a piece for the Washington Post, and he said, you know, that this is the latest pinata. No, no, it warrants criticism. I mean, um, Lloyd Austin has been a um, a concern for. Uh, in within the ranks of the military, uh, since he came into office, uh, because, since he was uh, his nomination was confirmed, he actually led a stand down uh, in the military. Uh, that was one of his first acts as defense secretary, and it was to ferret out extremists within the ranks of the military. Um, you can imagine how that was after January 6th when it was discovered that there were a lot of uh, vets and uh, current military members that participated in in those whatever, in some capacity in the demonstrations and even the riots in um, at the Capitol. Uh, as you can imagine how that's went over with the military, not so well. Um, you had members of Congress coming forward and saying basically for a woke agenda, you just wasted 
uh, six, five million hours of the military's time. So that's how his the tenure uh, as defense secretary started. Now we have this issue. Uh, I do think it's a concern when you have so much going on. I don't under- quite understand it. It's why did he, does he think that he could t- uh, keep a secret? Well, well, think about this, Susan, what happened? The White House, so on January 1st, he, he has a procedure in December, late December, prostate surgery. Elective surgery, they called it. It's not really what most people think of as elective surgery. I guess he elected which day it was going to be on, but this is this is cancer surgery. It's a serious thing. He was discharged from the hospital. There were complications. Apparently, we found out much later, a, a, a serious a urinary tract infection that would, could have been fatal. It was very serious. He went back in the hospital. He's 70 years old. He goes back in the hospital January 1st. As I understand it, he's supposed to do an event with Jake Sullivan on January 4th. And minutes before, hours before, we haven't gotten a clear thing. Jake Sullivan learns Austin isn't going to be there. That's the first they heard of it. His his The deputy secretary of defense, who was in Puerto Rico, didn't know about it. He was in the hospital for three or four days, and he didn't tell anyone. He didn't tell his, his, his superior officer, is the commander-in-chief of the Armed Forces of America, Joe Biden. He didn't tell his deputy. He didn't tell the vice president. What is it? That's not what a secretary of defense does. That it's kind of unheard of. This idea that we can't criticize him for any number of reasons—it's just it's it it's inexplicable. It beggars belief. What was he? No, I, I totally agree. I don't know if it's a fireable offense, but I. Well, uh, fireable. He, look, he ought to resign. He shouldn't make Biden fire him. That'd be a second thing. He'd be compromising Biden again. This. This idea, Leon Panetta wrote a piece, and you can see how appalled Leon is, but he's also a loyal Democrat. And he says, well, you know, Austin said going forward, he'll do better next time. <laughs> well, you, yeah, you, uh, you, you hope so. I think the Leon Panetta stuff is kind of rich, to be honest, because Leon Panetta, um, ha- you know, they talk about, well, why did this happen? You know, and there's been a lot of covering in the media uh, for this. You know, oh, he was just concerned he didn't want to disclose his prostate cancer, um, that it, what, what it was, well, he wouldn't have had to disclose it if he had been honest about it from the very beginning and notified, uh, even his deputy and up on, up the ranks. I mean, this, this is a continuity of government issue. I, I do believe that. And certainly we should have structures in place, policies in place before this happened that would require him to notify. You would just, and Leon Panetta said, oh, it was just a matter of, uh, pers- we just thought, for sure, I would let, I would tell, uh, the White House what I was doing. Well, Leon Panetta had to tell the White House what he was doing a lot because Leon Panetta had went back and I broke the story, went back to California every week. He had a private deal with President Obama that he could fly back on the government dime to California every week. So he was constantly, he was hyper aware that he needed to tell uh, the president where he was at all times. I know he doesn't like to disclose that. By the way, Susan, I covered Leon in the house. He he did that every weekend when he was a member of the house and he lived in Monterey. Yeah. He'd fly to SFO from Dulles. You know that yeah. road because you're from California like me. He'd drive a hundred miles south. One thing I would say about Leon Penn, I think we'd all agree, whatever your politics, he belongs in the commuting hall <laughs> Exactly. Of but in terms of like fostering this re- this idea that you can work remotely and still be the Secretary of Defense, 
it's just a very, um, you know, interesting thing. And that there was a lot of discussion. I'm, that may sound, but there was a lot of discussion about how there's no Jeffrey Zients is now trying to to recreate this connection between the cabinet secretaries and the White House because the White House has been operating too independently, and that's the reason for uh, why this was allowed. Just to back up a little bit, just so people know, Leon Panetta was. He was both defense secretary and White House chief of staff various times. And Tom, this is what he said, which I thought was interesting. He said, uh, this is sort of what Susan was alluding to. He said, there's been a gradual deterioration here with regards to the role of the cabinet. Because so much authority is centralized in the White House these days, the cabinet really only comes together usually for a press briefing by the president. So I thought that was interesting that I think what he's saying is that one of the reasons why Austin may have felt he didn't need to tell the White House because cabinet secretaries really don't matter as much as they used to. Um, and so he thought at some level, maybe it was okay. It was the first, you know, January 1st, New Year's Day. Why make the call? What do you think? Hogwash. <laughs> Number one, what do you have to do to get fired in this administration? I mean, nobody's lost their job for anything. Afghanistan, you go down the list, right? Biden doesn't seem to fire anyone for anything. Okay, that's number one. Number two is, you know, maybe Leon Panetta, maybe that's true with respect to, you know, I don't know, HUD or something. But we're talking about the Secretary of Defense. Okay. We've got wars going on in the Middle East. Okay. And our Secretary of Defense goes MIA for, you know, or AWOL, whatever, for, for four or five days, doesn't tell anybody and it's it's just absolutely ridiculous. Try that in your job. You know, an executive vice president of a company, try just, you know, taking four days off or, you know, you got cancer or whatever. Don't tell anybody and see if your boss is as forgiving as Joe Biden has been. That's number one. Number two, the media, okay. Tom, I'm going golfing tomorrow. <laughs> Saturday. You're going on a four-day four golf trip? <laughs> I love it. Just two hours. I just yeah. wanted you to know. <laughs> um, and then the media. It's it, the double standard here. I mean, I, forgive me. I, I beat this dead horse. But You're going to say this again? I mean, the media framed this story from the beginning as Republicans pounce and Republicans are weaponizing this and Republicans are doing this. And it's like, and then there was a story in Politico like, you know, Democrats aren't really, uh, they're, they, they want to know what happened, but they're not really concerned. There's no blowback. Of course, there's no blowback because the media has been covering for, for this. If this were Trump's secretary of defense, if Donald Trump didn't know where he was or what he was doing for four days in the middle of a, while we have wars going on in the Middle East, would the media be as forgiving? I mean, please give me a break. So I, I just find this whole story. Um, I think he should be fired. I think Biden should have fired him like the day he found out and said, this is unacceptable. We can't have this I think You know, whatever, he did a great job, but this was a terrible, terrible, uh, you know, lack of judgment that he displayed. And, and we can't, you know, I've lost confidence in him as as Secretary of Defense. He's not going to do that, but that's what should have happened in in a in a sane and sort of just world. That's what would happen. In the grand scheme of things, I would have liked to have seen him be fired over Afghanistan rather than you know his his you know not notifying the White House about being in the hospital for prostate cancer. But you know, in the, he already did that. I mean, that was that's piling up. Um, Tom's cra- crack about HUD reminds me on a lighter note of my fav- one of my favorite Reaganisms. Ronald, 
this thing about the cabinet not being the center of the universe is not new. It's probably started when Nixon was president, but Sam, Samuel Pierce was the secretary of HUD in the Reagan administration. And at some event at the White House, uh, Reagan greeted him by saying, hello, Mr. Mayor. He, did, <laughs> he didn't know who he was. Those were the days when it was just HUD. Well, I want to talk about this uh, new poll that uh, uh, Real Clear Opinion Research just did. This is our own data. Uh, Susan, we surveyed American voters about how they felt about religion. Uh, you wrote about it this week. What were the major findings? And uh, did anything about those poll results surprise you? Andy, wait, before you mm-hmm. call on Susan, one, I want to make just a point okay. of order. The reason Susan wrote this poll is because she's been writing about religious freedom for the um, over a year now for us and has done just wonderful work. If you listeners are unfamiliar with it, um, go on our, we got a homepage with some of her uh, religious freedom stories. She helped get, um, her reporting helped um, the Biden administration grant sanctuary to the Mayflower Church a group from China uh, that came over here that were being persecuted. And it's just, it's an issue we cover a lot. And I don't think, it, when I was a young reporter, that many people covering it. Now there's just a handful of people and Susan's one of them, which is why she wrote this post. So I wanted to, give a little introduction there. So when, when people hear Susan Crabtree talking about religious freedom, you're listening to somebody who really follows this issue. Well, with that, Susan, well, don't, don't well, disappoint thank you. us. That's now. high expectations there. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Carl. Appreciate that so much. But uh, it's been a pleasure that Real Clear Politics cares about religious freedom uh, when other publications haven't covered it, uh, have fallen off the radar with religious freedom. It's one of the number one causes of genocide and wars around the world. So we should all be caring about it. Uh, but this poll uh, they, that I had an opportunity to analyze uh, was interesting because, you know, I took a look at, I think you all probably remember back in the late 60s, it was a controversial Time magazine cover that said God is dead. Uh, they were, you know, evaluating in the middle of the late 60s in a radical uh, intellectual thought that maybe, you know, the country or even religion didn't need necessarily need a God per se in theology, <laughs> strangely enough. Well, it turns out they were well off the mark back, even back then. And this poll shows certainly today. The respondents of the poll were asked a series of questions about their beliefs, uh, spiritual and mystical in spiritual and mystical entities. Uh, they were asked how, what they had, if they believed in God, the devil, miracles, heaven, hell, all the topics listed, uh, God was the one that came out the strongest with 85% re- reporting that they believe in a creator uh, compared to just 15% that didn't believe. And so, you know, I, I thought that was surprising. Um, also, it turns out with all this talk of uh, Christian nationalism and uh, being derided in the media, the country's still majority Christian, uh, 58%. I thought that was surprising. We've seen a lot of headlines talking about declining uh, church attendance, uh, mosque attendance, uh, synagogue attendance uh, in recent years, but we haven't seen a lot of information about this enduring faith that the United States was founded on, America was founded on because of the Puritans coming here for religious freedom reasons. And the the most encouraging point of the poll I, I've thought was that 94% of those responding said they believed that religious freedom is a fundamental right and should be a fundamental right in this country. 
Uh, I'm not sure it, with all the all of the headlines we've seen lately about the rise in anti-Semitism uh, and the rise in Islamophobia, whether we recognize that as a country that 94% of Americans do believe that religious freedom, that is, you know, pluralistic ideas, tolerance, the right to practice how you, what you believe and how you, in the way you want to do it or not to practice at all is something that we, we have is a fundamental right as Americans. There's two things I would add to that um, in that poll that were interesting. I, I found one was that um, large majorities of Americans are worried about anti-Semitism and Islamophobia. There's a slight, there's a partisan divide. It's not slight, but it's more Democrats are worried about Islamophobia. More Republicans are worried about anti-Semitism, hatred against Jews. But more than two two thirds of Americans in every in of any of all stripes. Are worried about this. In other words, America is still a place that not only believes that you have the right, you know, tolerance, but but is is opposed to those who don't show tolerance, and 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 that's you know that was re- that's a reassuring thing. You, 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 if you've been following, you know, these these poor Ivy League presidents who you know besmirch themselves, that's not where the American people are. Um, and the other thing that's interesting about it to me, we've heard if you if you're if if you're in this world that Susan and I are and you follow the trends in, in um, religious beliefs in this country and, and people of faith, the, the, there's this new generation, it's like the great unawakening. They are less tied into organized religion than any generation in American history by far. They're called nuns in the, in the, uh, the Pew religious polling made that not, not nuns like Catholic nuns, nuns like N O N E S nuns. That, and the nun is, you ask them, are you affiliated to Judaism, Protestant, Catholic? They say none. They have no religious affiliation, no denominational affiliation. These numbers show that Americans are still, even people who would answer none to that, a lot of them, a majority of them, are still spiritual people. They still believe in a higher power, um, and they still they still believe there's a purpose to life that maybe transcends, you know, self-interest and selfish material aims. We didn't get into that level in the in the survey. But if you're a person, if you're a person of faith, this poll is, is encouraging. You know, I was struck by the fact that uh, uh, I think 85% say believe in God, but we also believe in a lot of other things. Um, 57, <laughs> 57% said they believe in aliens. Uh, 61% say they believe in ghosts. 70% say they believe in the devil. So what do you make of that? I mean, it does sound like on the one hand, I suppose it's good news that, that it's still a religious country. On the other hand, we believe in a lot of nutty stuff. Or- Don't forget that 45.8% of people still believe in witches. Oh, that was, right. uh, that was on the list right. as well. We, you but, know what? Uh, we, didn't ask, we didn't ask about Santa Claus. That was the one I that I thought asked we about, have asked about. But go ahead. Elvis, um, yeah. points taken. I mean, you can get, you know, if you ask, you know, UFOs, whatever, I mean, you'll get a decent percentage of folks who who believe in a variety of things. But- I think the overall tone to Carl's point, you know, I wouldn't have expected the numbers to be this high. 85.4% believe in God, 84.7 believe in heaven, 83% still believe or believe in miracles, uh, and that in God we trust should be should remain uh on our uh on our money and in our buildings. Um Jesus is the son of God, 80.3%. Those are big numbers. I mean, those are those are overwhelming majorities who who believe in God and heaven and and 
basically, you know, fundamental religious beliefs. And so I think that's, that is encouraging. That is, um, we do hear about the churches emptying out, secularisms taking hold, et cetera, et cetera. You know, when they asked what your religion is, um, I think, you know, atheism was down at five or 6%, agnosticism down at, you know, basically the same level. So maybe we are more of a religious country than we are led to believe by, uh, by our media and by some of the stories that we read in the news every day. Although the agnostics have the best bumper sticker. Which is? Militant agnostic in bold letters. And then in letters under that, I don't know and you don't either, exclamation point. <laughs> well, Carol, I want to circle just back to something, which was this sort of religious tolerance, I guess. And this idea yeah. that um, people do recognize that prejudice against Jews and against Muslims is a problem in the country. 78% said prejudice against Jews were a problem. 66% felt prejudice against uh, Muslims were a problem. 94%, I think we said that before, said they believe religious freedom is a fundamental right. I mean, that has to give us some hope, I think, that there is a recognition of uh, the importance of tolerance in a society where we don't hear a lot about Americans being tolerant. You know, Andy, it's a Central American trait. Now, you know, I'm reading a book about the Deerfield Massacre of 1704 and the the, the bad blood between the Jesuits and, and the Puritans in Massachusetts in the 18th century is no joke. But having said that, Benjamin Franklin, he said, you know, he spoke in a more verbiage that archaic today, but he said that, you know, if if the Mufti of Constantinople wanted to march down with a group of Mohammedans down, you know, city streets in Philadelphia, he personally would welcome him. The founders of this country uh, recognized that this was, that, look, all Americans didn't feel this way. And and sometimes they, they say they wanted protection, but only for their sect. So, but that there, there was a larger principle involved here and people got it. George Washington wrote a famous letter to the um, rabbi of Rhode Island and expressing the same thing. This is, this is a foundational American, it's a founding idea of our country, as that people have, should have the right to worship God in their way, or not worship, as Susan pointed out, and, and, that, and that government doesn't have the right to interfere with that, and other people don't have the right to interfere with that. And I, just, I would just say it's gratifying that this, all these years later, we're going through upheaval in this country, but that's still... Not, not only a majority view, a 94% view. You can't get 94% on any question, but you got it on this. And so in that sense, Americans, you know, are at least, at least they express, they express this principle. They don't always live it, but they get how important, how fundamental that is for us as a people, but also for the world. Well, I think that's a good note to end this podcast on. I want to thank Susan Crabtree, Carl Cannon, and Tom Bevan. Uh, if you haven't already, uh, you should check out the newest podcast from Real Clear Politics. It's called Poll Position. It's where Tom talks all things polling with leading public opinion experts. It's great because it not only talks about the numbers, some of the, some of the stuff that we talk about here, but it really gets into how polling works what pollsters are doing to try to keep up with changes in technology and demographics. So I recommend it to you. As ever, I urge you to go to Real Clear Politics, read one article from a writer or publication with whom you disagree. Thank you for listening. Until next time, for Real Clear Politics, I'm Andrew Waltworth.